0: Hello and welcome to series three of Made at UCL, the podcast. My name is Karis Bradley and I'm here to share with you UCL's groundbreaking research and its impact on the world. Each month the Made at UCL team and I will be exploring a research theme and gathering stories from all over the UCL community to try and understand it. For the fifth episode of the series, we're thinking about New beginnings. It's the start of a new term here at UCL, and this academic year will see us starting to open up our brand new campus, UCL East, in the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park. In time, nearly 4,000 students will be studying in the new state-of-the-art accessible facilities across two new buildings on the site in Stratford, in East London. Our UCL East campus will bring together disciplines as diverse as robotics, ecology, heritage studies and global health, and focus on the multidisciplinary, collaborative and community-led research. To mark the start of what will be the biggest expansion in UCL's history, we've spoken to three researchers who will be based at UCL East about their research and how it embodies the vision for the new campus. This month, the team has stories from an anthropologist who believes in the power of immersive storytelling, a social researcher trying to improve the health opportunities of young people, and a PhD student whose research is bringing greater access to green spaces. For our first story, we're heading over to Leighton in East London, before heading to the Queen Elizabeth Olympic Park to hear more about research around the campus. This is Takwa Sardik. About a
1: 15 minute drive from the new UCL East campus is the Avenue Road Estate. Along its white exterior walls are rows of blue and white front doors to each flat. And if you happen to walk past flat 1A in Rosewood Court, you'll be greeted by a lovely, impressive collection of plants and different coloured flowers. My name is Barbara and I live at 1A,
2: Rosewood Court. A lot of things in this garden have been given to me. Most of them, they've given me in a bad state and I like to sit and paint them and stick them in the garden, stick flowers in them. Some people give me flowers, some I bought, And I'm not green-fingered, everybody thinks I am, but I'm not. They just come up every year. I add a few more to them and
1: it just looks like that. As Barbara talks, I have to drag my cursor down a bit to get a proper look at the pink flowers peeking through the metal gate near my feet. Well, I say my feet. I'm looking around the Avenue Road estate via a VR film. This film was made by UCL students in the Immersive Storytelling Studio on the MA Ethnographic and Documentary Film, or MAEDF, under the mentoring of Professor Dinah Lammerman.
3: So I'm Dinah Lammerman, and I lead the Immersive Factual Storytelling MA in Public Anthropology. I worked at the BBC for years and years, and I worked at the BBC at the VR Hub. So I came on board to set up a studio within the MAEDF, And that has now developed to a point where we're setting up a new MA this autumn in Immersive Factual Storytelling. So Avenue Memories was part of an initiative to engage with stories in East London ahead of UCL moving to UCL East. And as our Immersive Factual Storytelling MA is going to be based at UCL East, I was really keen to start building relationships locally and to start really engaging with people and their stories in that area. On the surface of it,
1: the Avenue Road Estate story seems all too familiar. The start of the VR film sets a typical scene of East London gentrification and regeneration projects.
0: The Avenue Road Estate, Leytonstone, East London, was built in the early 1960s to help solve the severe housing shortage after the Second World War. The flats no longer meet the standards for modern living and cost a lot to maintain.
1: But there is a twist to the story.
0: In January 2021, 95% of residents voted in favour of a full regeneration of the Avenue Road estate.
1: It was very striking that the film opens with the fact that 95% of residents did vote for the transformation.
3: Yeah, unexpected. And I think... In a way, that gave it a a unique flavor, which made it possible for the students to see it and make a film that was very optimistic rather than something which was quite sad. Which is, as you say, is often the regeneration story is that the community is somehow being lost. Whereas, as we know, if you look around the world, you know, there's lots of places where residents are on the crest of that wave and they can be absolutely part of the future and they remain in that place. They don't get forced out, but they stay there, but they benefit from the the new affluence coming in. And to sort of figure out why that happens in some places and why it doesn't happen in other places is, is really intriguing. But also to explore this question of regeneration and who are the winners and, you know, are there losers?
1: There's another layer to the Avenue Road story that is particularly intriguing to me. could be seen as almost ironic that VR filmmaking students who are soon to be based in the new UCL East campus are making a film documenting a regeneration process that is in some ways a result of the building of the new campus.
3: It is a weird situation in a way in that UCL is one of the the main factors in this regeneration process but I think it's really important to kind of address that head on and, and, you know, really engage with people about what it means and and make it a really dynamic conversation. It's not a one-sided or a one-way thing. There's so many opportunities for academics and students to benefit from this relationship and for it to change the nature of what we're doing and what the stories are we're telling and, and how we're telling them. So it's not just a one-off that we just popped down and made a film, but really want to make sure that we continue to form that relationship and, and form that bond of trust so that actually it's working, you know, this this regeneration that UCL is so much a part of is working for everyone, not just, you know, the institution, but also the people who are being impacted by going there. And I think that Avenue Road, I felt like it managed to capture the sense of the future as well as looking back and really celebrating the past and what that place had meant to the people who lived there for so long.
1: I'm also struck by the way VR is being used as a way to archive things, including physical spaces, that are on the cusp of being lost or no longer accessible to us. It's a bit funny to me that, in a sense, you've got very new tech being used to preserve what is seemingly outmoded or outdated infrastructure. What was it like to try and explain to the residents and the people around the estate that you were using this still fairly unusual piece of tech to document that turning point in their lives and turning point in that community?
3: I think people are really intrigued by this element of archiving that is so, it's so much a part of our society now. I mean, obviously it always has been. We've always taken pictures and, but it's so much more, in the foreground now, the way we talk about things, you know, people talk about making memories and in social media encourages so much of it, capturing those moments or capturing, (laughs) maybe not real moments, but capturing aspirational moments that we're doing it all the time. And, and VR offers another dimension for that in that you can do it in a 360 space, which, which gives you a different kind of experience because when you put on a VR headset, you're in a 3D world. We all live in a 3D world. So people get it. And the fact of being able to put people right inside the story and they can see it all around them, gives them a very different experience and it can be very memorable. So yeah, VR, I think is a really useful way, particularly when it's a place that's going to be changed radically or is deteriorating radically.
1: Did they watch the film after it was completed and give any feedback?
3: Yeah I mean we our vision from the beginning really was to go to this community say what would you like to see what you, what would you like the film to be about kind of get a brief from them then go away and make the film and then come back and show it to them and get feedback um and so that we sort of managed to do that it was it was the sort of first time we'd we'd attempted it and it never works quite as smoothly as you'd hope but They did, they watched it and they, I mean, it was pretty much universally delight and excitement at seeing that their community being sort of celebrated in, in this new medium.
1: VR is often still seen as a relatively new and inaccessible medium, something that belonged to the world of tech startups and exclusive art exhibits rather than local communities. But Dinah's projects at UCL are consciously
3: trying to address this and we got a small amount of funding to to mean that we could really do this in the way that we wanted to so we could run a VR workshop in the community we could take some headsets take some students set some things up and show people what VR is and so i'm really keen that we'll start doing that again as part of our just as a part of our normal activity it's not some sort of special event but that students will be taking VR out showcasing it in different communities so libraries other institutions other places you know with a focus on East London because kind of why not because that's where we're going to be and that those are the relationships we really want to build but in a way that is very much beneficial to both both parties I think that's I think that's the way we should be looking at this and the way that we want to develop it and I really hope that we can do that in our program.
1: If you would like to watch Avenue Road Memories and see the estate for yourself, more information about this project is in the show notes.
0: Part of the creation of the new campus has been the effort to embed it into the local community. UCL staff and students will be collaborating with local businesses, schools, colleges and community organisations on events and research. Maria Bunyan brings us a story of one such collaboration.
4: This week, I spoke with Dr Alexandra Albert, who is a research fellow on the ACT-EARLY programme, which aims to address the impacts of childhood poverty by intervening early. Factors associated with childhood poverty are vital to understand because of the impact they can have on children later in life. There is a lot to unpack here. Experiences in education, access to healthcare, and impacts of the built environment can be compromised. And all of these factors interact. As for example, health issues aggravated by the built environment can make school even more challenging if sufficient health care is hard to access. And so researchers like Alex are studying these factors to make changes, advise councils and put policy in place to support children affected.
5: My main role is as a postdoc uh, research fellow on the ACT Early UK Preventative Research Partnership. ActEarly is a five-year medical research council and welcome-funded project. And it's part of this type of project. that's called a UKPRP or a Preventative Research Partnership Programme. And so we're about halfway through. The aim is to improve health opportunities for families with young children in
4: um, Bradford in West Yorkshire and in Tower Hamlets in East London. Two areas that experience high rates of child poverty. Alex explained that the initiative works with the local authorities and other stakeholders to understand child poverty and learn how to act early to prevent these inequalities at childhood impacting development. This requires a whole systems approach,
5: but also it's kind of working very kind of locally on the ground in both areas.
4: Alex explains that there are three core pillars of act early. First, healthy livelihoods looking at how to basically get more
5: money for families um, so that they can decide how best to, to spend it.
4: Secondly, healthy learning.
5: Education and support for families in both areas.
4: Thirdly, healthy places. And the impact of the built environment on families' health. These themes put families at the heart of ACT Early research and allow researchers to unpack, for example, how healthy livelihoods increase skills and control over community resources, how healthy learning means the enriched education leads to better access to attaining qualifications at school and in turn increases access to opportunities in the future and how healthy places can be open spaces that support mental health and well-being
5: so there's lots of different aspects and the work is kind of loosely grouped around these themes my role is, yeah, as a research fellow across healthy livelihoods and healthy learning themes in London, and then also the citizen science and co-production theme in in London.
4: Citizen science and co-production was a new concept to me, so I asked Alex to explain exactly what this entails. I see citizen science as
5: involving people, anyone, in different parts of the research process and kind of undertaking scientific inquiry. So... That could be involving people in kind of crowdsourcing data and submitting observations or data to a, to a project that's already organized. Or it could be, you know, kind of more involved approach to asking people about kind of what sort of research questions would be most relevant or important to them. And then actually involving them in the kind of research design phase and the kind of data collection phase and also potentially the analysis
4: citizen science can be classified by the level of participation and we can understand co-production as a more values-based approach
5: but actually we've been working quite hard over the last sort of couple of years to develop a co-production strategy for how partners and stakeholders in act early should do co-production and we did that by actually going and asking different organizations community groups individuals in the two areas about their experience of doing co-production and kind of what works well and who does it work well for.
4: And so what does this look like on the ground in Tower Hamlets? I
5: guess I've been working in a kind of more involved way, I would say. So in the first year or so of the project of Act Early, I actually worked really closely with a really interesting health partnership in kind of Tower Hamlets called the Bromley by Bow Centre. So they have a kind of GP's practice, but they also have a lot of other kind of activities and events in around the centre, which is a physical centre in in Tower Hamlets in Bow. And so during the, well, yeah, I guess it was in 2020. So it was during the pandemic, we were trying to understand what makes the best start in life for families with children in Tower Hamlets and kind of recruited a community research team um, of different community researchers from across the borough um, and then kind of worked to develop lots of different activities and different ways to engage um, with residents in Tower Hamlets to better understand yeah what makes the best start in life.
4: This included providing activities for the children which gave the researchers opportunity to open up conversations with parents. The goal was to engage the whole family, because they were working collaboratively, researchers were also asking members of the community to help interpret and make sense of these findings.
5: With Act Early, it was one of the things that we were most concerned about was kind of not wanting to reinvent the wheel and actually going to communities and, and understanding what they'd already done before and kind of building on that learning. And That's why we were using this kind of appreciative inquiry approach. The idea was to kind of share what had gone before and uh, in the hope that it was kind of more engaging for people, but also to kind of yeah not just like helicopter in like a researcher and and then also to leave again like the one of the good or like one of the great things about activity is the fact that it's this kind of longer-term project and a lot of it is around is is focused on kind of building relationships and and it's kind of thinking about things in a much longer term in a much more of a longer term way
4: Alex makes a very clear and interesting point here Research centred at the heart of the community that it serves is more likely to be representative of the community itself. In addition to the researchers bringing their own academic expertise, it's the role of the researchers to listen to members of the community and give them ownership. This makes for a more sustainable research cycle. Alex's approach requires researchers to become part of the community, which in a way she already is. Well
5: I actually live in Tower Hamlets as well so I have and I kind of moved here, um, yeah, just after starting work on the on ACT early. And um, so I think for me, it's about like, you know, getting to know a lot of my, of the local area um, and lots of organisations and lots of amazing individuals and kind of groups. I mean, I think there's loads of potential for UCL to have a, like a a really important role in engaging with residents, but also like neighbours, neighbouring communities and to kind of yeah, build some of the relationships that I've been talking about in terms of, like, I mean, yeah, what we've been doing with ACT Early and Tower Hamlets.
4: What stood out to me when speaking with Alex was her compassion. I feel like when we're working with people, we're often taught to be impartial and often a little bit distanced. However, the compassion and insightfulness that Alex brings from being engaged and living in the area, means that her research gains an extra level of depth. This is particularly important when working with children and families and when trying to make a positive impact in people's lives. Progress is no mean feat and can't be achieved, in Alex's own words, by helicoptering in. The work is only as valuable as the communities perceive it to be. And if citizen science and co-production are used, this is how research can put its best foot forwards.
0: By expanding to East London and creating a new campus, UCL was presented with an opportunity to make its campus more accessible, something that is desperately needed but can be difficult with the kinds of historical buildings the university has traditionally occupied. One of the organisations moving to UCL East next year is the Global Disability Innovation Hub, which focuses on making the world more accessible through inclusive design and assistive technology. Last year, the GDI Hub was named the World Health Organization's first official collaborating centre on global disability. For our final story, Katie Davies has looked into one of its projects.
6: When we think of being around green open spaces, we tend to think visually. We think of the panoramic views, the different colours of countless flowers and watching the wildlife. But being in nature is so much more than just a visual. It's a place where we can really breathe in the air
2: really listen to the sounds of the words and smell the flowers or smell the grass even
6: or the rain that has fallen you know the night before. Being in green open spaces is a multi-sensory experience and one of the perhaps unsurprising consequences of several years of lockdowns and restrictions is that many of us rediscovered the power of this experience nature's ability to help soothe our stresses and reconnect us with the world. There is a lot of research
2: in environmental sciences and in psychology on the impact of open spaces and nature and green spaces, blue spaces, for example, on sort of attention restoration,
6: on relaxation and general mental and physical well-being. This is Mariam Bandukta a final year PhD student who is exploring navigation strategies for people with visual impairment in green open spaces. Despite the importance of experiencing open green space, these spaces present a new set of challenges for blind navigation due to their unique layout. Mobility and orientation techniques, for example using a cane, rely on built infrastructure references for successful navigation what people do is generally they follow the curb line or they
2: follow the building line so that they know they're walking in a straight line in the middle of the pavement and or not colliding with the wall. But when you go to an open space, it's a huge open space, right? Generally, we don't have perfectly built pathways or you know, if, if a person, for example, wanted to go from the entrance of the park to the play area or to the cafe, there isn't generally a clear wayfinding.
6: The lack of landmarks makes it difficult for blind individuals to navigate large spaces independently. This is where Mariam's research comes in, looking at assistive technologies to facilitate outdoor nature, exploration, and engagement for those with visual impairment. When you say assistive technologies, is technology specifically designed
2: to meet specific needs of a population that is disabled? How can technology create that impact? And how do we create technology that for disabled people? One example of the type of this assistive technology is AI soundscape. What it does is that as a person is walking along a route, it would read out the street names on their life, left and right around them. It would read out shop names, it would read out bus stops. So it's essentially creating a three-dimensional soundscape of the
6: environment which is not visually accessible to that person. In addition to reading out key locations, the drumbeat tells the user which side of them the destination is located. Something you'd only be able to notice if you're wearing headphones. Here is a short extract from AI Soundscape, recorded by Henshaw Society for Blind People in a project where they tried out the app. Lancastrian Office Centre. Lancashire County Cricket Club. Talbot Road slash Warwick Road Road bus stop. Tesco Extra, 180 metres.
1: Parking lot.
6: It's assistive technologies such as AI Soundscape that help empower people with visual impairments to be able to be independent. But as Mariam has found, they need to be adapted for green open spaces where there is no built environment. Could landmarks such as trees or rocks be used to facilitate exploration and route learning?
2: We take our learnings and expertise from brain sciences and our learning from computer science and engineering sciences and sort of bring that knowledge together to understand how can we create the best experience and interaction for different types
6: of users with different types of technology. When speaking with Mariam, I was struck by the fact that an estimated 285 million people live with visual impairment worldwide, and I wanted to find out if this meant that her work had a global focus. My PhD research has, it's been global. You know, I
2: had that global focus, but then I was fortunately given a few opportunities by UCL Public Engagement to focus much more, you know, on East London community and how do people access and how do people use it? How do people generally feel about, you Olympic Park Open Space? Uh, what kind of activities are there? How do they envision uh, or how do they imagine the space, you know, can be more uh, uh, inclusive? How is it serving the purpose that it was designed for? How is it a space, a hub for the communities around
6: it? With the growing age population in the UK, it is estimated that the number of people living with sight loss in the UK will double by 2025. Mariam's research at the new UCL East campus is vital for creating a world accessible to those with sight loss.
0: The UCL East campus has a lot of potential. Today we've told you about just three research projects, but they barely scratch the surface of what is made possible by the new site. Our first building is opening in autumn 2022, and we're welcoming our first cohort of students with more development coming over the next few years. For more information on UCL East, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash UCL East. Or stay tuned to Made at UCL to find out about the research happening through our stories. Thank you for listening to the fifth episode of Season 3. We'll be back next month with more stories from the UCL community. In the meantime, if you want further information on any of the projects featured in today's episode, you can check the show notes for links, pictures and more. You have been listening to Made at UCL, the podcast. To listen to previous episodes or find out more about life at UCL, visit www.ucl.ac.uk forward slash made at UCL, or subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. The episode was presented by myself, Karis Bradley, with stories from Takwa Sadik, Maria Bunyan, and Katie Davies. It was produced by Hallie McCarthy with support from UCL and features theme music from the Blue Dot Sessions. For a full list of audio credits, please see the show notes. Special thanks to Dina, Alex, and Mariam for sharing their research with us. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, Bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. See you next month.